This is a Scream Queen production. of So Dead. I'm your host, Jen Carpenter. Today's episode is inspired by a random post I saw on the social meds recently. It said, people will swim in the ocean even though there are many corpses in it, but people will not swim in a pool with just one corpse in it. This means all humans have a corpse to water ratio that is acceptable for them to swim in. And while pretty awkwardly worded, Whoever came up with this thought originally wasn't wrong. There are so many secrets that hide in the murky waters of our oceans, our lakes, our rivers. Which is why I prefer chemically treated, clear to the bottom water for my swimming. I am much more of a pool girl than a lake girl, which sucks because I quite literally live in the Great Lakes state. I've gotten into specifics of Lake Michigan before. We've talked about the area and the depth and the volume. The big thing to keep in mind if you're not from around these parts and have never laid thine own eyes upon the Great Lakes is that they're much more ocean-like than Nana's house on the lake. There's even a pretty common phrase that you'll find slapped on t-shirts and keychains. The Great Lakes, unsalted and shark-free. And while that is mostly true, that doesn't mean that there aren't things lurking. We've talked about some dark Great Lakes history in the past. We've covered Beaver Island, which was invaded by King James and his weird polygamist Mormon cult. North Fox Island, where a bunch of rich white dudes ran an Epstein-like child pornography ring. Mackinac Island, where they used to drown quote-unquote witches. The Lake Michigan Triangle, where people, ships, and whole-ass airplanes tend to simply disappear. But today I want to talk about the Great Lakes' most infamous landmark, the longest suspension bridge in the Western Hemisphere, the Mackinac Bridge, specifically the shocking deaths associated with said bridge. But before we get into all of that, I would like to thank today's sponsor. Lately, I've been trying to get caught up on podcasts. Right now, I am listening to Wicked Words and The Seduction with Keith Morrison, and they're both so much fun. One reason they're so great to listen to? Because I use my Raycon wireless earbuds to do it. Raycon's everyday earbuds look, feel, and sound better than ever. With optimized gel tips for the perfect in-ear fit, these earbuds are so comfortable, and they will not budge, trust me. Raycons give you eight hours of playtime in one sitting and a 32-hour battery life. And Raycons are priced just right. You get quality audio at half the price of other premium audio brands. It's no wonder Raycons Everyday Earbuds have over 50,000 five-star reviews. I really like Raycon's customizable sound profiles so that when I do want to switch from podcasts to music, it's quick and easy to change those levels for optimal listening. 
My favorite thing about my Raycons, though, is awareness mode, which lets the noise from your surroundings flow into your earbuds so that you can keep your ears open to what's going on in the world around you. So if you're out alone, jogging, or walking, you can listen to music or podcasts or audiobooks or whatever and still be aware and hear if someone's maybe getting a little too close or a little too creepy. Safety first. I love to pop my Raycons in during a slow day at the shop so I can listen to Tales of Murder while I'm organizing books about murder. I may have a problem. And with awareness mode, I still hear the door when it opens. Forgive me if I scream, though, because some of these stories get pretty intense and I get I get invested. Go to buyraycon.com slash so dead to get 15% off your Raycon order. That's B-U-Y. R-A-Y-C-O-N dot com slash so dead to score 15% off. Buy Raycon.com slash so dead. And be sure to tell them I sent you. All right, let's get into it. The Mackinac Bridge is a 26,000 foot long suspension bridge spanning the Straits of Mackinac between Michigan's upper and lower peninsulas. It opened in 1957 and safely transports over 11,000 travelers per day from Mackinac City to St. Ignace and back. Well, mostly safely. Since before the bridge was even built, it's been plagued by tragedy, with five workers dying during construction alone. The most infamous Mighty Mac death occurred in September of 1989, when 31-year-old waitress Leslie Pluhar's car plunged from the bridge to the treacherous water below, marking the first but not the last time that a vehicle fell from the bridge into the lake, resulting in death. The most common version of the story, which is not entirely correct, is that Leslie was driving across the bridge from the lower peninsula to the upper peninsula when a gust of wind lifted her tiny Yugo into the air and just tossed it off the bridge. Which is horrifying to even think about. Could you imagine being on the bridge and seeing something like that happen and then still being stuck on the bridge and having to finish crossing it yourself? Before we talk about what really happened that day, I do want to talk a bit more about the bridge and about the car that Leslie was driving because all of that factored into what happened. The Mackinac Bridge. Big Mac. Mighty Mac. Over 1 million tons of steel and concrete, nearly 5 miles long, suspended 200 feet above water level, and the water is almost 300 feet deep at certain points at the Mackinac Straits. So you're 500 feet above ground, basically. And according to the internet, that is equivalent to a 55-story building. So imagine driving your car on the edge of a 55-story building for five miles. Yeah, girl, it is terrifying. The bridge is four lanes wide, two lanes in each direction, with an 11-inch median in the middle. The outer walls of the bridge are 38 inches tall. That is just over three feet, separating you from the lake bottom 500 feet below. If you can't tell yet, The Mackinac Bridge fucking terrifies me. I've crossed it once, well, twice, because I had to come back. I didn't want to stay in the UP for the rest of my life. But yeah, once was enough for me. I would rather swim next time. And I'm not not a good swimmer, so there's that. Um, 
The bridge is beautiful. I love to take pictures of it. I know some of you nuts like to bike and walk across it during special events, but that it, uh, it is just not for me. To make matters worse, the inner lane in each direction is made of metal grates instead of pavement. Who wants to drive over see-through metal grates 55 stories above the lake bottom? This has something to do with lowering the impact of high winds, architecture, etc., etc. But Jesus fucking Christ, it's horrifying. Speaking of wind, the bridge was built to sway up to 25 feet in each direction to prevent structural damage caused by wind. 25 feet is like the length of four average-sized humans. So for five miles... 500 feet in the air, you're driving over see-through metal grates whilst swaying 50 feet back and forth with only a wall the height of a toddler keeping you from going over the edge. The speed limit on the Mackinac Bridge is 45 miles an hour for passenger vehicles, 25 miles an hour for semis and other oversized vehicles. If you're going the speed limit and there are no delays, it takes about seven minutes to get from one side of the bridge to the other. It's a wonder, given all I've just shared with you, that cars aren't plunging off the bridge left and right. But surprisingly, it didn't happen for the first time until 1989, over 30 years after the bridge opened to the public. And the car that went over the edge? The worst car in history, literally, that's what it's called, the worst car in the history of cars. There are books about it. A fucking Yugo. The Yugo was such a bad car that it was marketed in the U.S. for less than 10 years, from 1985 to 1992. A subcompact hatchback, Yugos were small, cheap, ugly as fuck, and so unsafe. Even before they were out there on the roadways, there were concerns over the design, safety, and reliability of the Yugo. The little car that couldn't quickly became notorious for frequent breakdowns, total annihilation during crashes, being hard to handle and steer, brakes that were prone to seize up out of nowhere, and engine fires. Just a bad time all around, but they were cheap. And for someone just looking to get from point A to point B, that was a big selling point. There were people lined around the blocks at dealerships when these cars first came out for some ungodly reason. And Leslie Pluhar of Royal Oak managed to snag herself a blue one. Also, here's where I acknowledge that I'm quite possibly pronouncing Leslie's last name wrong. It's P-L-U-H-A-R, so it's either Pluhar or Pluer, maybe. Um, we're going to go with Pluhar, but I could be wrong, and if I'm wrong, I apologize. Leslie was born on January 3rd, 1958, to George and Carolyn Pluhar, one of five children. She grew up in the Detroit area where she was close with her family, especially her grandmother, and made friends easily. She was described as good-hearted, energetic, and the type of person who would do anything for anyone. She loved to cook, ride bikes, and read. Though she lived in Royal Oak, a suburb of Detroit, she loved the Upper Peninsula. The drive from Royal Oak to St. Ignace, which is the very first city you hit in the UP after crossing the bridge, is nearly 300 miles, so you've really gotta love it to make that trip on a regular basis. 
Leslie attended Oakland Community College, and she was hoping to transfer to Wayne State University, where she wanted to study to become a dietitian. During her hiatus from college, she was holding down two jobs. She worked for UPS in Madison Heights and at Clawson Steakhouse. Madison Heights and Clawson are both uh, Detroit suburbs as well. In the summer of 1989, Leslie was 31 years old. While on a weekend trip to the UP, she met 34-year-old Frederick Burton, a construction worker from Gould City, some 50 miles north of St. Ignace. The two quickly fell in love, and they wouldn't let the 350 miles that separated them keep them apart. They commuted back and forth almost every weekend. Leslie's family said it was the happiest they'd ever seen her. By September, just a couple of months into their relationship, the two were already talking about marriage. September 22, 1989, was a Friday. Leslie loaded up her Yugo and headed to the UP for a very important trip. She was to meet Frederick's mother and see his new apartment for the first time. She'd gotten him a beautiful stained glass lamp as a housewarming gift. The sun began to set as Leslie traveled north toward Mackinac City. It was a balmy 43 degrees at the northernmost point of the Lower Peninsula. The weather was clear but windy. Winds were coming out of the northwest at 30 to 35 miles an hour with gusts of close to 50 miles an hour. While experts and authorities would later argue that the wind wasn't severe enough to be dangerous that night, Joe Dunn, who was crossing the bridge just ahead of Leslie, told the South Bend Tribune, I was kind of having fun crossing that night. It was like an amusement ride. The wind put me in the other lane. Joe's 25-year-old brother, John, was a few cars behind him, and so he had a front row seat as the terror on the bridge began to unfold. At 6.40 p.m., the little blue Yugo in front of John swerved toward the median, separating them from oncoming traffic, then back toward the bridge's outer wall. It hit the three-and-a-half-foot-tall wall head-on, then flipped over. According to witnesses, it was lifted into the air by a wind gust, but that detail would later be heavily disputed by officials. In front of horrified onlookers, the Yugo tumbled into the choppy 35-degree water below and disappeared. No one got a license plate or anything. It all happened so fast, and it would be days before divers would be able to recover the car, so authorities had no idea who was behind the wheel of the vehicle, how many people were in the car, just that a car with at least one person in it had gone over the bridge. Meanwhile, Frederick Burton was waiting at his new apartment in Gould City for Leslie to arrive. This was long before cell phones, so when somebody was late or not where they were supposed to be, there was really nothing to do but wait. Hours passed, Frederick's anxiety grew, and he contacted Leslie's family in Royal Oak to let them know that she'd never arrived. When morning came, the recovery effort at the bridge began and news started to spread about the blue Yugo that had been blown off the bridge by a gust of wind. It didn't take Leslie's loved ones long to put the pieces together. The Pluhars traveled to St. Ignace, a small town at the southernmost tip of the Upper Peninsula. Again, this is the city that you find yourself in when you very first exit the Mackinac Bridge. You're in St. Ignace. They checked into a hotel there and they waited as patiently as they could for search and rescue crews to find Leslie. They didn't have hope that Leslie had survived, but they wanted her body recovered so that they could take her home. 
Frederick was reeling from the sudden, shocking loss of his would-be fiancé when tragedy struck again. Four days after Leslie's accident, his mother, who Leslie was on her way up there to meet, died of a heart attack. The following day, Wednesday, September 27th, a sonar scanner located Leslie's Yugo upside down at the bottom of the Mackinac Straits, 200 feet under the water's surface. The car was teetering precariously close to a slope that dropped off another 100 feet, which, if the car fell down into that slope, it would make recovery nearly impossible with the equipment that the state police had on hand. Bad weather, choppy water, and high winds hampered their efforts further. In fact, the weather was so bad that authorities closed the bridge down completely at points. On Thursday, September 28th, 50-mile-per-hour winds and 10-foot waves shut down the recovery effort completely. That was also the day Frederick Burton buried his mother. By Friday, September 29th, one full week since the car went over the bridge, the public began to grow impatient. You know where the car is, just go get it. But in those conditions, with a vehicle over 200 feet underwater, Recovery was a dangerous mission, and authorities weren't going to compound this tragedy and risk more lives to recover one body, no matter how long it took to get it done safely. On Friday, a team of 12 divers was deployed to search by hand in total darkness for the upside-down car. The choppy water had stirred up so much sediment that visibility at the lake bottom was basically zero. The divers went in teams of two, and because of the depth, they could only explore the bottom of the lake for 18 minutes at a time. Afterwards, the divers would have to rest for 24 full hours before making another attempt. So the deeper divers go, the more nitrogen builds up in the body, and that has to be slowly released as the diver ascends back to the surface. If decompression happens too fast— Divers get the bends, which is a condition that causes gas bubbles in the bloodstream and can be fatal. So this whole thing was very delicate and could not be rushed. The U.S. Coast Guard was on standby with a ship named Buckthorn, ready to hoist the Yugo from the depths once it was located. Before we find Leslie and her Yugo, I do want to take a moment to thank today's other sponsor. Care Of believes that you deserve to feel your best this summer. From getting outside and enjoying the sun to surviving the heat to engaging in summertime activities, swimming, hiking, exploring, Care Of is here to help you take care of yourself all summer long. Their convenient individual packets make traveling super easy. Just grab one packet for each day you'll be gone and boom, your vitamin routine is set even when you're away from home. No big, bulky bottles rattling around in your suitcase. No pills spilling out in the bottom of your bag. To get started, you just take a short, in-depth quiz about your lifestyle and health goals for a personalized recommendation, taking the guesswork out of what supplements are best suited for you. I really love how easy Care-of makes it to just grab and go. I'm a grab-and-go type of gal, and more and more these days, I'm leaning into products that make my life easier. Care-of is definitely one of those, and the little box that sits on the counter is so cute, very retro, so it's stylish to boot. For 50% off your first Care-of order, go to TakeCareOf.com and enter code SODEAD50. Again, that's TakeCareOf.com, promo code SODEAD50. Be sure to tell them I sent you. 
On Saturday, September 30th, 1989, divers located Leslie in her car. The plan was to remove the body, then the car, but the car was so crushed that was impossible. They would have to bring the Yugo up with Leslie still inside it. Meanwhile, spectators and looky-loos lined the lake shore and floated on the lake in boats with binoculars and 25-cent telescopes. So not only did rescuers have to be careful to keep their divers safe, but they had to pull the car up as discreetly as possible because the world was watching. Cables were attached to the Yugo, and it was hoisted slowly to the surface. As soon as it emerged from the water, a strategically positioned crew threw a tarp over it so that onlookers couldn't get a glimpse of the body. Although there was no doubt, Leslie Pluhar's car was identified by its VIN number. The license plate remains on the lake bottom to this day. Her family identified her by her belongings. An autopsy determined that Leslie was alive when she hit the water. She died from blunt force head trauma and drowning. Her family took her back home to the Detroit area, and they buried her at Whitechapel Memorial Park Cemetery in Troy, Michigan. But their story was far from over. They lost their loved one because her car fell off a bridge. That shouldn't happen. Surely it had to be a safety issue, right? Between the wind, the lower-than-recommended guardrail, the lightweight and steering trouble with Yugos, It was really a perfect storm that led to an unthinkable tragedy. So the Pluhar family filed a wrongful death lawsuit against the Michigan Department of Transportation, Yugo of America Incorporated, the dealership that sold Leslie the car, and the engineering firm in New York that designed the bridge. They focused on the known safety issues with Yugos, the bridge's lack of safety protocols in bad weather, and the overall construction of the bridge, which they claimed was outdated and no longer up to standards. The defense focused on the fact that Leslie was determined to be speeding um, somewhere between 10 and 20 miles over the speed limit, and they also focused on her less-than-stellar driving record. In the early 80s, Leslie racked up a number of speeding tickets, license suspensions, even a DUI, but Her record had been spotless since 1985, four years before the accident. Multiple experts testified that the bridge was unsafe and the guardrails were too low and needed to be raised. But to do that, it would require complete reconstruction of the bridge. So in the end, the Michigan Department of Transportation determined that would be way too costly And instead, they settled with the Pluhars for somewhere in the area of half a million dollars and put up wind advisory signs on the bridge. Their chief argument was that in the 30-plus years the bridge had been opened, only one car had ever gone over the edge. And in the 30-plus years since Leslie Pluhar's accident, it's only happened one other time. On Sunday, March 2nd, 1997, 25-year-old Richard Ricky Darabin was headed home to New Baltimore, a small city north of Detroit, when tragedy struck. Authorities determined he was driving his Ford Bronco at least 20 miles over the speed limit southbound on the Mackinac Bridge when he suddenly veered hard right, struck the guardrail, and flipped over the edge of the bridge. Unlike the day Leslie Pluhar died, the weather was calm. Winds were clocked at no more than 10 miles an hour. 
The Straits of Mackinac were iced over, and Ricky's body was recovered from the ice by a Coast Guard helicopter just 30 feet from a Bronco-sized hole in the ice. The Darabin family and the public immediately brought the bridge's safety into question, just as the Pluhar family had done years earlier. But MDOT again brought out stacks of stati- <laughs> stacks of statistics to prove how safe the bridge was. Initially, they blamed Ricky's history. He'd been convicted of multiple drunk driving charges, and he hadn't had a valid driver's license in years. But his family insisted that he had been sober for several years. Uh, When his autopsy came back with a 0.0 blood alcohol level, authorities changed their tune. They decided that Ricky was distraught over his relationship with the mother of his child, She was suing him for child support and had just moved in with another man. And they said that because of this, he purposely drove his Bronco off the Mackinac Bridge, which was the only thing that explained why there were no skid marks and no evidence that he attempted to stop. Unlike Leslie Pluhar, who was alive when her car hit the water, Ricky Darabin was driving fast enough that the crash on the bridge is what killed him. The Bronco's airbag deployed, and an autopsy found that Ricky died from blunt force trauma to the chest, consistent with hitting the steering wheel. Ricky's family vehemently denied the possibility that he took his own life. He cherished his three-year-old son, Cody. He had just passed a skilled trades test and gotten a job at Ford Motor Company. He was clean and sober, finally. But Ricky's co-workers testified that he was indeed suicidal in the days before his death. In fact, on his last day of work before the accident, he was telling a coworker about a car that had gone over the Mackinac Bridge once, Leslie's, obviously, and he was kind of speculating about how fast one would have to drive to jump the barrier. Not to mention, nobody had any explanation for what Ricky was even doing all the way at the Mackinac Bridge some 300 miles from home. The state argued that Ricky drove to the bridge with the sole intention of taking his life, and the court ultimately agreed. On an appeal filed by Ricky's family in 2002, the decision was upheld, so uh, the court sided with the state in the case of Ricky Darban. On Wednesday, June 15, 2022, the 200-millionth vehicle crossed the Mackinac Bridge. 200 million vehicles in 65 years, and only two have ever gone over the edge. One that has become a bit of an urban legend, and one that resulted in a super messy court case. But it's important in all of this to remember the victims. 31-year-old Leslie Ann Pluhar loved her family, wanted to be a dietitian, and was excited about her future with the man of her dreams. 25-year-old Ricky Darabin loved his little boy and had fought so hard to get sober in the time before his death. It's also important to remember that zero structural changes have been made to the Mackinac Bridge in an attempt to make it safer, even though this has been recommended by countless professionals and authorities and experts. Another thing to remember, if you, like me, are terrified to traverse the longest suspension bridge in the Western Hemisphere, 55 stories above ground with its see-through grates and 50-foot sway and teeny-tiny guardrails, there's still a way to make it happen. 
The Mackinac Bridge Authority offers driver assistance services 24-7. An experienced staff member will drive your car across the bridge for you while you cower in the passenger seat with your eyes closed. The service costs $10 because time is money, baby, and it's available no matter what direction you're traveling in. If you're in St. Ignace coming back to the Lower Peninsula, you can request this service at the administration near the entrance to the bridge. If you're in Mackinac City headed to the UP, pull over on the shoulder just north of exit 339 near the booth and call bridge services. Since there was no phone number included with this instruction, I assume there's a sign at said exit with the phone number on it. I couldn't tell you because my eyeballs were closed tight the only time that I went over that bridge. That's all I've got for today. Thank you for coming to my dead talk. My main source for today was just old newspaper articles, mostly from the Detroit Free Press. I did get some information from the website MackinawBridge.org and, of course, the, like, the demographical and statistical info I snagged from Wikipedia. All right, time for some liquid cheese. I don't know. I don't know how liquid cheesy this is. Um, it's just something that I feel that I need to address as part of the true crime community, and that is the big Billy Jensen scandal. I don't, it hurts my heart to even bring it up. It's so hard. Um, so here's the deal. I've been a big fan of Billy Jensen's for years. Danny and I interviewed him very early on in the podcast, right before his podcast, uh, The Murder Squad, started, and right before his first book came out. And he and I have been in contact periodically since. You know, sometimes I will send people his way, you know, family members interested in having their case covered in front of a bigger audience. Um, we had talked about him coming to a festival of oddities. We had talked about him doing a signing possibly at Dead Time Stories for his new book that was supposed to come out this month, actually, in July. So I was a big fan and just kind of considered myself honored to have his ear when I needed it, but I didn't know him. I didn't know him, and clearly nobody knew him. So uh, earlier this year, the murder squad just kind of abruptly stopped. And at the time, it made sense. Billy and Paul were both very busy with their books and all of that. But then fairly recently, maybe a couple months ago or so, it was announced that murder squad was done and would not be coming back again. You know, podcasts don't last forever. So it wasn't like hugely alarming. The thing that was weird was it was announced that they were going to be pulling all of the Murder Squad episodes from the internet. Like, it's going to be gone. It's not just over. It's going to be scrubbed from the internet, which that's weird. And that started to raise some concerns. And there were these little hints, you know, not, not really saying things, but kind of saying things that something big was going on. Um, involving sexual harassment slash assault allegations against Billy within the Exactly Right Network, and there was a lawsuit, and there were depositions going, and all all this. And I waited. Um, you know, a lot of people were real quick to jump ship. I was not one of them, just because I hadn't heard anything other than rumors. And this is kind of where it gets tricky, right? Because victims are not required to share their stories and their experiences with us for them to be valid. But at the same time, if we have no information to go on, what what do we believe? And so I just kind of sat back and 
hands off, ignored the situation, let the stories start to roll out, and they they have. Um, there's a podcast called Too Many Jennifers, episode 34 is um, about the host of that podcast, one of the hosts, her name's Jen Tisdale, it's about her experience with Billy. I'm not going to get into it here because it's a he said, she said, her allegations against him, he has come out and strongly denied them. Uh, I would just say go listen to it for yourself and see what you think. I found it to be credible, especially when factored in with the other stories. Those have been a little less clear, but what is clear is that there are multiple people that have accused him of this. So the allegations by Jen Tisdale are not even the allegations that resulted in Billy being fired from Exactly Right or the lawsuit or any of that. And the lawsuit actually wasn't against Billy, to to clarify. Um, The lawsuit is against Exactly Right because this woman that he harassed slash assaulted, however it's to be classified, allegedly reported this to her higher-ups and then was forced to continue working with him while it was investigated. So the lawsuit was actually against Exactly Right for not handling the situation properly, which is also upsetting because Exactly Right is Karen and Georgia, my favorite murder. Like, they're my true crime heroes, love it or hate it. And so that's really disappointing to think that, you know, they knew about something like this going on and didn't handle it properly. Because all of these people, and I think what especially makes it so, so painful, is that all of these people are supposed to be victims advocates, right? Billy Jensen supports women, supports victims, and now it comes out that he's he's got his own victims, allegedly. And again, He is strongly denying all of these allegations. There have been no criminal charges whatsoever, but there are so many accusations. I've not seen a single person in the true crime community stand up for him, kind of quite the opposite to where they're all saying, yeah, we knew this about him, and watch how much worse it's about to get. And it's just really disheartening, and it's really upsetting when you put your faith into someone and you kind of champion all of their projects and really support them and then you find out that they're not who they said they were. It's upsetting, and it's disappointing, and it's hard, too. It would be easier to just believe that these are all lies, but how How many? How many? If I'm just talking gibberish to you right now and you have no idea what's going on with the whole Billy Jensen of it all, um, again, that episode of Too Many Jennifers, give that a listen. There's another podcast called Affirmative Murder that recently released an episode called um, The Elephant at the Party, which one of the hosts of Affirmative Murder was at this business function with Billy's alleged victim that that he got fired from exactly right over and kind of watched it all happen real time. So it's a different take from, you know, a lot of people are saying Jen Tisdale is more of like a scorned romantic interest. Uh, Maybe, but that doesn't mean she's not telling the truth. And... This guy doesn't really have any skin in the game. He's just telling what he experienced and what he knows, allegedly. So those are very interesting. There's lots of threads on Reddit, which I don't really Reddit very well. And it just, it's hard. It's hard to let go of someone that you believed in and supported. And it's hard to see them as they are instead of as you've always pictured them. But it's important to do. When there are credible stories, when there are multiple 
alleged victims, it's important to take that stand and say that you believe the victims and your support is for them and no longer for this person that you had been supporting all this time. So the episode of So Dead featuring Billy Jensen's interview has been removed from the show. It's been taken out of our feed. Uh, All of my Billy Jensen books and merchandise and everything that I had at Dead Time Stories, it's gone in the trash even. So yeah, just kind of wanted to address that because, you know, I've, I've, I'm sure there are episodes within the feed that I'm not even thinking of where Billy was mentioned or talked about and that, you know, things have changed. So I just wanted to address it and kind of put my stance on it all out there. I support victims. I believe victims always. And um, this whole thing's just really disappointing, really disappointing. So that's it. I know. Liquid cheese is supposed to be fun, and this was not fun at all. I just, it was important to me to talk about that. Liquid cheese will be fun next time, I promise. In upcoming events, uh, Shark Week is July 24th through the 31st, and so we're going to be doing, like, daily giveaways at Dead Time Stories, uh, fun little stuff for kids. We've got a special selection of books that's all about murder at sea and sharks and the ocean and all of that. So we're going to we're going to try to have some fun with the shark week stuff here. Uh, and then a festival of oddities is creeping ever so close. It is September 3rd, so the Saturday before Labor Day at the Courthouse Square Museum in Charlotte. It's from 11 a.m. to 6 p.m. It is the best time in the whole world and I can't wait for it. So if you're in the Lansing-ish, Charlotte-ish area, definitely recommend that you come out. If not, it's a good little day trip. There's hotels, there's restaurants, there's lots to do in the area. So kind of do like a do like a little staycation for Labor Day this year if you're not going anywhere. New episode of So Dead is coming your way in a couple of weeks. Uh, until then, keep shining, you magnificent what-the-fucks. Fucks.